You guys can be seated. If you're a note taker, you can follow along in the app where it says notes. Anything we put on the screen, you'll have in the app. Here's kind of the main idea and the title for today, The Lord Who Formed You in the Womb. God, through his prophet Isaiah, reminds us that we are God's workmanship. God created us, and therefore we are to be obedient to what God calls us to. That God created you. That God created me. That God created humanity. And that he formed you in the womb. That you are unique. That you are, that you are his. And that he has a way for you to live. When we live outside of that, we find nothing but misery. When we live inside that plan, when we live the way God has created us to live, we find joy, we find peace. That will be the overall message of Isaiah today. Remember this, Isaiah lived almost 800 years before Jesus. He prophesies about an event that takes roughly 600 years before Jesus. God says in advance what God is going to do, and then God does it. God then delivers the people of Judah from a, an army who has come in and devoured everyone else, including all of Judah up to the capital city of Jerusalem. And the king repents and he turns to God and God promises to save Jerusalem and God does. The army encamps outside of Jerusalem and God strikes them dead. And instead of remembering God, the people quickly drift away. And before we, come too, we become too judgmental against the people, so do we, right? God moves in our lives, God does something, and, and it is super quick. The amount of time that goes by before we forget and go back to doing our own thing. So God moves them into exile. He allows another king, a few decades later, to come in and conquer them and take them away to Babylon. They are now in Babylon, enslaved in Babylon, Isaiah is long dead, but Isaiah has written down everything God told him, and he keeps giving it to his disciples, and his disciples pass it on to more disciples, and as the time comes and God says, now I'm going to deliver you from slavery, God again begins to speak through his prophet Isaiah, through his disciples, the writings that he wrote 100, 150 years prior, and says, I'm going to deliver you from Babylon, from Nebuchadnezzar, the king who captured you. In fact, today, God will name the king who will deliver them. The Lord who formed you in the womb. That will be a phrase that we'll hear today. If you guys are watching online at home, thank you. Please, again, like we said earlier, check in, like this, share this. We've got a consistent group of people that are joining us on the internet from all over the country. And, and it's such a privilege that we can tell this story, the story of God, the story of God's people in many ways and to many places. And so hear the word of the Lord today. Let this challenge our hearts. Isaiah 44, verse 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I've chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you in the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Now, I, I will admit this, uh, not that this is a big surprise, but as we've been going through Isaiah, it's hard for all of us, me included, as I'm studying this, it's hard to figure out as God uses Israel, Judah, Jacob, Jeshurun, Jerusalem, Zion, as he uses all these things, he's talking to the same group of people. 
There was the kingdom that God had put together that David reigned over, that Solomon reigned over, that as they became disobedient to God, they split in half and became a northern and southern kingdom. Israel and Judah. Judah had the capital, Jerusalem. Like if you talk to America or you say Washington made a decision, right? We're talking about the capital city representing the people. So all these different names. But the name Israel came from a man named Jacob. Jacob was one of two twins born to a couple long ago in the, in the book of Genesis. But his name is interesting. Jacob and Esau are twin brothers. Esau is born first. But before Esau is born, Jacob starts to come out. He sticks a hand out or a foot out, something. He sticks something out, and they're like, oh, here comes the first one. And then he pulls it back in, and then Esau comes out first. Now, this is huge in the Old Testament. This is huge in a country, in a, in a time, in a history where the firstborn meant everything. They got a double portion of the inheritance. Big deal. Not super important to us today. But Esau comes out and then Jacob comes out. So they, they call him Jacob. His name means heel catcher, which is kind of a colloquialism in Hebrew meaning deceiver. He deceived them like he was going to come out first and then didn't. But then as you follow the story of Jacob, Jacob becomes a con artist. Jacob conspires together with his mom to rip off his brother by tricking his dad. Just, I mean, totally sounds like every family, right? <laughs> and then, running from his brother to save his life, he goes on, meets a woman, and her father just completely deceives him, cons him out of things, and eventually they rip him off. So it's a beautiful history of a godly, faith-filled legacy, right? That's Jacob. Consider when God calls them Jacob. So as Pastor Scott mentioned last week, literally, Jacob wrestles with God. God is going to get a hold of Jacob. Jacob is submitting, but not quickly. And when he does, when God captures his heart and takes over, he renames him Israel. Naming in the Bible is a position of authority. Like you name your children because you have authority over them. That's what we see. And so God takes authority over Jacob, this deceptive con artist who's got a promise on his life, but he is a train wreck of a human being. So God takes over, literally wrestles with him, submits him, and changes his name to Israel, which means governed by God. Now this name, Jeshurun, it means righteous one, one who is righteous and upright. So hear the gospel story as God speaks through Isaiah, and he speaks to Jacob, a sinful, just sinful person. Just put your own sins in there. Maybe you're not a carn artist. Maybe you are. But uh, maybe you're an addict. Maybe you're prideful. Maybe you're this. Maybe you're that. Whatever you are. God takes a person who is one person, who is really obviously identified by their sins, be they pride or ego, addiction or whatever, God takes that person and, and transforms them, really takes authority over them. And oftentimes in scripture, they get a new name, a new identity. We get a new identity in Christ, that we are not identified by the sins of our past and our worst decisions, but rather we are identified by Christ's best decisions on our behalf, that we become governed by Christ, governed by God, and ultimately 
Christ, through the power and the working of the gospel, through his Holy Spirit, we become ones who are upright. God begins this passage by calling them a collection of names, but he's proclaiming the gospel over them. Yes, you have been sinful. Maybe you are right now. But I will lead you and govern you, and I will remake you. That's the gospel message. That's the story of redemption. I looked up the word redemption because redeem and redeemer and redemption come up so many times today. It's to offset what's lacking in you. To take what you are missing and, and to make up for it. That's redemption. Whoever you are, as broken as you are, as empty as you are, as flawed as you are, redemption means God grabs a hold of you and fills in all that is lacking. That you could be a good man and a good husband and a good father, a good woman, a good wife, a good mother, a good daughter, a good son, a good student, a good worker, a good boss, a good pastor, a good worship leader. He fills in what is lacking. Verse 3 says this. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. The context of this is them still being in Babylon. They're still enslaved. They're still under the authority of a king who doesn't want them or doesn't care for them. Keeps them as, as second class citizen slaves. And they've, they're losing hope. So in this context, living in Babylon, exiled from their own home country, God speaks and promises them. The image is water in a desert. Your life may feel like a desert. God says, I'm going to bring springs of life in it. Right? The promise to them is that they will have a spiritual renewal coming. That the water coming in the desert is a water that will be flowing out of them. A spiritual renewal will come. And for Israel in Babylon, it's a promise of hope for the future that God will do as God has promised and he will liberate the people. And that that day is really pivoting in this chapter, in this passage today, we're going to see God press into not only am I going to do it, here's how I'm going to do it. But first he'll deal with a spiritual blessing. Here's how I'm going to do that. Then he'll deal with a physical hope. Here's how I'm going to release you from Babylon. So verse 4, they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. Do you see the gospel again? Jacob. Some will call on Jacob. Jacob, you are a mess too. Your God delivered you. Will your God deliver me? Some will just identify themselves by the Lord. It's like, God, you change people. Please change me. Others will say they're the Lord's and, and identify themselves with Israel, governed by God. They will call themselves the Lord's and identify themselves as followers of God, faith, people with a faith in their creator. So Isaiah is using this language, or God through Isaiah is using this language to not just tell us a narrative, a historical thing, not just tell us a prophecy, how God tells someone what they're gonna, what's going to happen before it happens so he proves that he is real. Not just a God who calls out idolatry or challenges idols to tell the future like he does. He challenges the idols, hey, can you even tell us the past? But not just that, he is reminding them 
of a redemptive narrative of how God takes sinful, broken, hurting people and renews them and changes them and leads them and makes them new people. We need to hear that today. Verse 5, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, besides me there is no God. Hear this, the King of Israel, this sa thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer. God is now pointing forward to how he will carry out redemption for humanity. So, I, and he also says that, uh, this Lord of hosts, this Redeemer will say, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Sound familiar? If you're not a student of the Bible, I'll put it up for you in just a minute. But there is language here that is pointing forward to something that will take place. This morning, I was reading in Luke 24. I was just finishing the Gospel of Luke. And, and just in my time as I pray and read through Scripture. And yesterday, I left off at the end of 23 thinking, you know what? I just want to read about the resurrection tomorrow morning before I go to church. So just let's park here and let's read that tomorrow morning. It was so cool. I get up this morning and there's this story about Jesus being resurrected. There's the, there's the account of the women finding out that Jesus is resurrected. But in Luke 24, those of you who know the passage, it transitioned to two disciples walking towards a city called Emmaus, right? And they're walking along the road and, and Jesus comes up and they are having this conversation, but they don't know it's Jesus. And then Jesus does this. It says this. Jesus is asking, what things are you talking about? What's going on? They're like, are you crazy? Do you not know what's going on? Right? He says, what things? And the disciples said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rules delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since things, these things have happened. Here's what's going on. The disciples are walking with the resurrected Jesus, but early in Luke 24, it says that they've just covered their eyes that they won't know. And he's listening, and they're all distraught about the things that have taken place. It's three days after the crucifixion and the burial. And they're just distraught, and they're walking off to this other city, and he says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, oh, all the stuff that's going on right now. And he's like, whoa, what stuff? They're like, have you not heard? Here's what happened. There was this Jesus, and he was with us. And he did these miracles, and he taught like no one else. He spoke with authority, and the religious leaders came against him. But every time he spoke, they were just left speechless. And then finally, they accused him falsely and condemned him falsely and imprisoned him and then the Roman soldiers crucified him. And now he's dead and buried. The important part is that verse we just had up. We thought he was the one to redeem Israel. Let me read this passage in Isaiah to you again with those words in mind. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Then he goes on, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Revelation 22, 13, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. God and Jesus begin to speak through Isaiah to the people. The king of Israel, the big K, king, always king, the eternal king of God's people and his redeemer begin to speak. 
As God has promised that there will be a spiritual renewal, he's now unpacking how. Hundreds of years later, disciples, still confused by the crucifixion, are kind of throwing in this this giving up, if you will. We're like, man, we thought he was the redeemer Isaiah promised. We thought he was the redeemer that God told us about, that Isaiah told us about, that Ezekiel told us about, that, that was promised to us. We thought redemption had come. But they think Jesus is still in the grave. But Jesus has risen from the grave, is walking with them, and reveals himself to them. Verse 7, back in Isaiah, says this, Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set before me, since I appoint an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. God is saying, who does this? Who is like me that created you and you abandoned me? that forgave you and did miracles in your presence, that saved you from an army, and yet you forgot about me and went back to foreign gods, to gods that are not gods at all. Yet I still forgive you. Yet I still pursue you. Yet I still want to lead you out of Babylon. I still want to restore you to your nation. He just says, who does this? Who forgives like that? Who pursues the one that has done them wrong and rather than do wrong to them, wants to reconcile them? God says, who would do this for you? Would anyone else do this? But I love you. I pursue you. Verse 8, fear not nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. In your Bible, rock's probably capitalized, right? There's a name here. There's, a, there's something being spoken about here. thought, man, we'll just tell you the story, but there is, there's a verse that is just so clear about this. 1 Corinthians 10 says this. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. He's talking about when the Israelites were taken out of Egypt, when they were slaves in Egypt and God delivered them, right? And as God takes them out, again, the Egyptian army pursues them and all the Israelites are telling Moses, oh, well, there are not enough of graves in Egypt. You know, why didn't we just leave us there to die? How could, we'd rather be slaves than be slaughtered here on the edge of the water. And then God parts the sea and they walk through on dry land. And then God collapses the sea on the Egyptian army and eliminates them. Again, miracle after miracle, but God's people continue to forget. And so now Paul is telling the church in Corinth, who is not Jewish, he's telling about this story, reminding them that God does this. He goes on, he says this, that all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. On Essentials on Sunday night, where we've worked our way through early preaching of the gospel, early teaching of the churches, even before the New Testament was finished, when they were just living it out. We got into the early church creeds. They said, I believe this, I believe this. And one of the first things that goes wrong is everybody starts asking questions about the identity of Jesus. And the fight breaks out in the church, and the church makes a stand that Jesus is uncreated, that Jesus is eternal, that Jesus has no beginning and no end that Jesus was a part of creation, that there's never been a time where Jesus was not. 
And Paul reminds us Jesus was there with them in the desert 2,000 years before he entered into human flesh. That he was the rock that gave them to drink in the desert. Verse 9, all who fashion idols are nothing, God says. And the things they delight do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Listen, who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. If you've been around generations over the last several chapters of this, God continually takes aim. Here's the deal. The people of God continually result to worshiping idols instead of God. And so God lifts his hand off them. God lifts his protection. God lifts his blessing off them. And he allows the, the, the things of this world to come in and surround them and collapse on them. Sometimes, literally, even an army consuming them and taking them into captivity. So God continues to speak to them and call them back to repentance. Say, listen, I'm God, there's no other. I'm the one that delivered you. I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one that created you. I'm the one that, that saved you from the Assyrian king when he wiped out the rest of the known world. And I'm the one that let the Babylonian king conquer you because you wouldn't listen. God's people over history continually lose sight of God and give themselves to other things. And when they do that, God just simply lifts his hand off them and lets the decisions that they have made kind of collapse on them. Doesn't mean he loses sight of them. Doesn't mean he stops loving them. He shows them, this is what you're choosing. This is how you're choosing to live, and this is the consequences of living this way. I love you. I'm here. You're worshiping stuff that will never satisfy you, that cannot answer you, that cannot lead you, that cannot deliver you. I'm God. When you're ready, you come back to me. But God doesn't sit there and wait. He continues to speak. Chance after chance after chance. Draws them back. They come back for a minute. They turn away. God says, man, come back. Come back. It's his message. And when you come back, here's how you do it. You lay down all these false things that you worship. You set them aside. You give yourselves to them no longer. You worship me, me only. That's his call. It's his call today. This is the passage we read earlier. I want you to hear it different. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals the ironsmith, not just, that's a human being, works with iron. You don't have to know much, that's what it is, right? Who made the ironsmith? Is working with tools over coal. Who made all that? I don't even know what his tools are made out of, but I know God made the stuff, right? Okay, so the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers made by God, or at least the resources by God, and works it with his strong arm given to him by Oh, we're getting this all together. All right. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. Why? Because he's just a human being. Because he is created, not a creator. He can't even sustain himself. 
You with me? The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. All that stuff, including the carpenter, made by... Oh, we're getting it. All right. He shapes it into the figure of a man. Gets a little squirrely here, right? With the beauty of a man. So he shapes it into something that looks like something God made. How dumb is this, right? How crazy is this? To dwell in a house. Oh, yeah, that God made. He cuts down cedars. He chooses a cypress tree or an oak. Let's it grow strong. Who made the trees? Who grows them? I don't get it, right? Right? Let's it grow strong among the trees of the forest in which God made. He plants a cedar, which means he has a seed that God gave him, that he plants in the ground that God made, and he stands around and watches what only God can do. Right? So that when this thing grows, he can take it and go make it into an idol. You with me? Uh, do you see the story that happens all that, that we do? Again, before we get all judgmental and sit back and go, oh, these guys are, that's us, right? He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Love that line, as God causes it to rain. Then it becomes fuel for a man, reminding ourselves that, God, that man is not self-sufficient, right? He takes a part of it and warms himself because... He gets cold. He can't sustain himself. He kindles a fire that God gave him, bakes bread that God showed him how. He makes a God, lower G, lowercase g, an idol and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half, I love this. So he takes a tree. I don't love this. I love how God says it. I hate the fact that it's so true. He takes a tree that God grew. Listen. And he says this, half of it he burns in the fire, over half of it he eats meat, he roasts and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. Okay. Verse 17, and the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. We take a tree, and you only need so much to make an idol. So we take the rest of it and we make fire. So, so some of it's good for burning. I'm trying to figure out which piece it is that is divine. Which piece of it is so good that we should bow down and give ourselves to it. But it's not good enough on its own. This guy, who can't even provide his own rest, warmth, food, or drink, has to carve it out to make it look like him so he can worship it. Oh... Got it. So I'm the problem. I just want God to look like me. Oh. We can just park right there, right? Like, that's it. That's our problem. So modern day idols. God said, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You can look that up in Exodus 20. We give worship, defined as adoration and sacrifice, to so many idols daily that we don't even see it anymore. God calls us to remove the blinders from our eyes and see the idolatry. Just because we don't always fashion something that we actually put there, light a candle, light some incense, bow down, say some prayers to, does not mean we don't worship. Does not mean we don't have idols, right? And probably the deepest understanding of this is when we try 
and, and form God into looking like us. Oh, well, that's not fair, what God says in his word. It must be like this, because what you think is fair is how God should be conformed to. Oh, well, I want this, but God said no. Well, clearly I'm right, and God's wrong. Keep forming God in our own image, right? Okay, the next slide. Let me just ask you some questions for modern idolatry. What do you sacrifice for? What do you sacrifice more for than God? What do you give more to, sacrifice more to, than you do God? There's, you don't have time to make the list that you should make, or me, right? What do you buy that you can't afford to pay cash for? Right? Oh, we got personal. Yeah. What, what comforts do you put before God? Right? Like I'm just saying right now, cowboys are playing right now. <laughs> but I'm here. Praise you, Jesus, for DVRs, right? So I can go home and be disappointed later. Yeah. Let me say that. Let me put those other two the same way. Now, a lot of us love to get Starbucks in the morning or do something, right? So here's an example, right? Nobody thinks Starbucks is their idol. But do we make sure we have a budget for Starbucks and forget to tithe to God? Maybe coffee's not your thing, but you get the point, right? We're wrapping up financial peace, wherever Bill is, this week, this coming week. Just loaded with passages about the borrower being slave to the lender and God reminding us when you can afford it, that's when you can have it, right? What crowds out our time with God? Sorry about the typo. With God, your family, or your church? Is that your job? Is that your hobby? Is that the thing that you've cloaked in godliness and call it your ministry? Right? You should be able to answer all those questions with lots of things. Those are your idols. That's where you spend your time and your money. Those are the things you sacrifice for in a way that you should only sacrifice to God. Those are the things you give of yourself for that cut into your family, that cut into your church, that cut into your worship. Those are idols. That makes sense? That's that part of the tree that you've just crafted down to make it look like your house or your title and your job, a little degree, initials after your name to prove you're smart. Or the, the bank account you want to pretend you have so you drive something you can't afford and act in ways you really shouldn't. Those are your idols. Those are my idols. You know why it's super easy to write those questions down? Because that's where I'm guilty. It's easy to see the idolatry. It's easy to see the things that we fashion. It's just not out of wood or gold, maybe. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Verse 18, they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. Here's what God says. You keep doing it, so I shut your eyes and harden your hearts. You can't even see what you're doing anymore. Right? Read Romans 1. They trade in worship of the creator for worship of created things. So much so that God hardens their heart and gives them over to it. And then there's a list of things that they do. Remember when we said we worship 
idols so much, but we're blind and we don't even see the ways that we do it, here's why. Because we've been doing it for so long that it's just hardened our heart. It's caused us to be blind to what we're doing. But God is calling us, listen, soften your heart. Take the blinders off your eyes, right? You guys know that my favorite verse in all of scriptures, Ezekiel 36, 26, I will take from you a heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. Right, my words, a heart that can beat for God instead of a heart that can't, right? I'll pour out my spirit on you, it says in the next verse, cleanse you, cause you to obey me. Like God is willing to do the hard work, we just have to surrender, Verse 19, no one considers nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on the ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself, listen to this line, or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Right? The car that was going to be so satisfying that we're going to pay, end up paying twice of what it's worth, right? It's a lie. The family that you're going to have and make in such a way that would make you look better, it's a lie. Right? The job that makes you so important, it's a lie. The political party that will fix everything, a lie. Yes, all of them, right? No matter where you land, one of the last three presidents, you've probably thought this one's it. We're still waiting. It's a lie. <laughs> right? Your party, I don't care who it is, isn't going to fix it all. Jesus can fix it all. I'll leave it there. The godly cause you think makes you godly because you stand up for the planet that God created doesn't make you godly. It's a lie. Because you stand up for all life, because all life is created, that cause doesn't make you godly. It's a lie. God makes you godly, sacrificing for him, not for a cause that should be the outcome of the gospel. Right? Don't miss the main thing because you're caught up on this other thing. This other thing can matter. Don't miss the main thing. Right? That must be personal. That role in the church that you think makes you important, it's a lie. God is it. Not the role, not the church, not the cause, not the title, not the family, not the thing you drive or the hobby you have. It's God. Everything else is a lie. Verse 21, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel. Remember those words. If you are my servant, I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Remember, redeemed, compensated for your defects. I've done that, God says. Not anything else. Everything else is a lie. I've done that. I've forgiven your sins. I've compensated for all your flaws. I've blotted out your sins and redeemed you. Here's a note. Got that slide, Justine? Or whoever? God blotted out your sins and redeemed you. Your sins no longer define you. I said this earlier. If God is compensated for your defects, stop settling for forgiveness and be redeemed. Live as God has created you to live. Quit settling for being a forgiven Jacob. Be governed by God. Be redeemed by God. Be who God has created you 
right? How God has created you to live, who God has created you to be, be that. Quit settling, right? Here's what he says, though. Listen, I have blotted out your transgressions. Verse 22, we just read. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. What is the response to being redeemed? What is the response to being redeemed? Worship is the response to being redeemed. He calls the people who are forgiven and redeemed to shout out, to sing out, to proclaim God's worth. Why do we put more worship at the end of the service than we do in the beginning? Because the correct response to what God is doing is to worship God for what God has done. Why is it such a pet peeve that people will hang out, they'll show up a little bit late, and then they'll hang out for the message, and then they'll bounce and go get coffee and not worship God? Because God continually calls us to worship God. If he says, listen, I'll do all the hard work, you just proclaim my name and worship. Why would we not give him what he says when he has done it? Verse 24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb... That sentence should go through before all the next sentences. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Remember that guy who took that piece of wood and he carved that thing? God says, remember, I carved you. I made you in the womb. Why are Christians so passionate, all Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, denominational, non-denominational, why are we so passionate about standing up against abortion? Because God says time and time again, I built you. I formed you in the womb. You were alive before you ever took breath. When those cells made something, that's life. It's not a fetus, it's not tissue, it's life. And if God has a plan from that moment, I am sympathetic to terrible circumstances, but it's a life, right? It's not an inconvenience. It's God's creation. You want to make an idol? God says, look at what I make. So thus says the Lord, your redeemer who formed you from the womb. Then he goes on to say several things. Who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back from their foolish knowledge? He's saying, I am the one true God. I tell you where to go. I tell you what will happen. Not some, some psychic, not some tarot card readers, not your astrology chart, not this, not that. That's all sin. He says, I'm the one. And that's why I make them look foolish. Because I am God. I formed you in the womb. I created you. He goes on, so I'm the God who created. He says, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, shall it be inhabited and the cities of Judah, they shall be built. I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. Here we go. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Cyrus is a young man at this point coming up in a, in a nation called Persia who will rise up and lead Persia to conquer Babylon. And long before that, in fact, don't even think just long before that. 
Remember Isaiah died back here? Long before that, before, before Cyrus was ever born, God named him. And next week we'll see him name him again. And don't forget, these are the books that were so highly criticized in the, in the, the modern era of criticism until they found the Qumran tablets that have been buried for hundreds of years since around this time before Cyrus took over. And God again says, remember, I formed you. I'm the only one that can say what happens because I cause it to happen. Lay down everything else. Everything else is an idol. Repent of your idolatry. I need to repent of my idolatry, as do you. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you need to repent of your idolatry of you and surrender yourself to Jesus, to one who created you, to one who formed you in the womb. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We love you because we're undeserving of you, and yet you relentlessly pursue us. You gave your life for us. You have called us to follow you. You remind us that you made us, that you formed us in the womb, that you cause life. There is no other who causes life. You remind us that you have a, a purpose for all of us, and that we find our purpose in you and you alone. Anything else that we give ourselves to, be it ourself, be it the idols that we commonly see, anything that takes the place that only you should have, it's an idol, and we need to lay it at your feet, God. We need to lay it at your feet, Jesus. Holy Spirit, reveal our idolatry to us, all of us, every one of us. And let us prayerfully, thoughtfully repent of that idolatry before we come forward and take communion. Before we come forward and we remind ourselves of your body broken, your blood shed, your covenant over us, let us meet with you in our hearts. Jesus, you are God. There is no other. Let us turn and begin to live that way. We will all struggle, but let us give our hearts to you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.